Hello, everyone, and welcome to Recovery Machine, episode 11. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm here with co-host Nathan. Hello, Nathan. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. It's a Sunday, and I worked a three-day work week, so that is good. I like it. Very good. Yeah, good for you. Congratulations from all of us. Uh, yeah, it going? It's, a, it's good. <laughs> yeah, It's good. I did a beautiful uh, five-kilometer walk around a local lake this morning. It was just like a like a Tom Thompson painting. It was beautiful, and um, so I feel great. Awesome. And looking forward to this episode. So for our listeners, we have uh, kind of a different and kind of a special episode today. We have a guest. Uh, we have my, my dad, my father, Ron, is here. Um, today, we're going to talk about grief and resilience. Uh, the question has come up in, in so many meetings that I've been a part of and in discussions I know that, Nathan, we've had about what to do when, when uh, you're maybe early in recovery or at any point in recovery, and life doesn't necessarily get easier right away. Um, oftentimes, abstaining or stopping our substance of choice leaves us with a host of challenges. And then just because you're in recovery does not mean that life gets easier. And sometimes it gets a whole hell of a lot harder. And that is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what we want to talk about today. And it just so happens that my dad, Ron here is, is uh, someone who has lived it and come out the other side. So Ron, from both of us, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you this afternoon. Thank you. Yeah. yeah good to have you on. Good to finally meet you. Nice to meet you, Nathan. So uh, we're going to kind of format it as we have done in, in past episodes where uh, Nathan, you'll ask Ron a series of questions so we can get to know him and I'll, um, I'll fill in, fill in any blanks and, and ask some things that come to mind as we go. Um, Ron, you, we have your consent. You sure do. <laughs> Excellent. All okay. right. Yeah. Take it away, Nathan. Now that the legalities are taken care of, we can move forward. So I guess basically uh, we're going to start with uh, kind of getting a little bit of a history from you, Ron, and um, we're just going to move along and discuss um, some past issues you had with alcohol. And then mm -hmm. uh, one major challenge specifically that you faced um, and, uh, yeah, we'll just, uh, we'll go through, uh, we've got a series of questions here that I think will illustrate how you, um, starting from your, your struggle with alcohol and then, uh, getting past that and then maintaining your recovery throughout a very trying time. So, uh, can you give us a little bit of, uh, a backstory, like, where you grew up as far as, uh, are you from the lower mainland? Is that where you started out? No, I grew up, um, in Regina, Saskatchewan. Uh, Ooh. I, uh, <clears throat> I lived there until my, uh, mid twenties. I, uh, had what I consider a, a fairly normal family in many ways. Uh, I had two older sisters and, and they were 10 and 11 years older than I oh, was. Wow. So that, and almost two families, then there was myself and a younger sister and a younger brother. So there was five of us. And uh, my father uh, was prior to coming to Canada, he, he worked in the coal mines in Wales, uh, from the age of 14, and then immigrated to Canada when he was about 19. Uh, 
and ended up in Regina. My mother was a, a Saskatchewan girl, stay-at-home uh, mother. She suffered from depression. And my mother died when I was 25. Uh, as a kid, uh, I lacked a lot of things in terms of personal. I had little confidence, uh, terrible self-image, and, uh, and just a, a, a real aversion uh, to uh, some socializing because I wasn't confident in doing it. So uh, I went to school in, in Regina, uh, uh, took a, an undergraduate degree uh, in Regina at the university there. Uh, and in 1966, when I was in my early 20s, was married. And out of that marriage, uh, I had two daughters. Uh, and, uh, and that generally was my uh, focus of, of Regina. After I got my degree, I was fortunate enough to get a job in a, in a new residential treatment center uh, for disturbed and delinquent boys. Oh, wow. And I was looking for something because nothing interested me at university. I would take whatever I thought I could get a mark in. And uh, by the end of it, I'd, I'd finished the degree, but still didn't know what I wanted to do. So when I tried this, I, I loved it. And, uh, and, and that then led me to say, I've got to go back and I want to get a master's degree because I, I want to keep doing this. So that's when I left Regina, uh, came back after the degree. And, and my career continued for a number of years with that organization. Okay. So what exactly were you uh, studying after you picked a direction? Uh, social work. Social work. Uh, social work, yes. Okay. So you, you worked at this um, uh, facility for a while while you were in Saskatchewan? Yes, yes. Okay. And a after, the, uh, after I got out to, came out to UBC, uh, to uh, get a master's in social work, uh, I went back to that agency and, uh, and then worked into supervisory and management jobs. And I stayed there uh, from uh, 1969 when I came back to uh, 1977. Okay. And then for some reason, uh, you decided to move over to BC? Was there another career opportunity or how did that work out? Well, it worked out generally because uh, during the last few years, uh, two years, actually two and a half years that I was at that program, uh, I was, uh, I held the position of director of the program. The uh, existing director was away getting his PhD. And, uh, and then when he came back, uh, you know, things were, it's difficult for somebody to be away and come back and step in again. And even more difficult when the person that was, was running the show uh, is still there and, and has his loyalties. And I, I, I thought, well, you know, I've always since coming back from BC uh, with uh, coming from UBC, uh, I thought BC would be a great place to live. Sure. So I, I started looking in the paper and, uh, and applied for, oh, three different jobs, one in Montreal, one in Calgary, and one in BC, hoping the BC one would be the successful one, and, uh, and it was. And so in 1977, uh, the career went from Saskatchewan to British Columbia. Okay. And you were married at that point? I was married at that point, yes. Uh, in 1977, uh, I got married in 1966, 
and we moved in 77 and the marriage dissolved in 79. Okay. Uh, rather an, an acrimonious dissolving of the uh, partnership, but it uh, it ended in, in 70 late, late 79. Okay. So yeah. and you so you had two daughters with uh, the previous marriage. Yes, and they were they were living with their mother. Okay. Uh, w- when the marriage broke up. Okay. So you're down working as uh, at UBC in this new position, and what kind of what kind of stuff uh, were you working on in the program at that time? Out here in BC. Yeah. Well, it was a new program, uh, and it was part of what the government at that time called a youth containment program. So it was a juvenile jail. Okay. With no bars, it was it was. Uh, uh, containment through some degree of isolation. Uh, it was in an isolated uh, uh, forested area. Uh, and it, basically it was the worst kids at that time in the province who were heading to the adult system once they got old enough. Uh, but it was a challenge in, in trying to apply uh, some of the things I'd learned in the treatment center uh, to what, what amounted to a jail. Right. And there was frustrations in that. And, and I think I, I made some headway and yep. there were certain things I, I didn't like I, uh, around uh, the notion of, of working in a jail and tried to make it a little softer, uh, right. a little more amenable. And I think we were able to do that. And uh, so that's where I got my start out here. It was a, uh, a program uh, that housed 30 kids and uh, and with some success and and some failures, obviously. Okay, so this was uh, was there a juvenile program before that, or was this one of the? It was a new one, Nathan. A new one, it, yeah. Uh, the, the government had had announced it uh, as a result, I think, of of uh, many instances and many examples of juvenile crime. Uh, okay. reaching a point where the, particularly the politicians said, we don't want, we can't deal with this anymore. We need something harsher. So within okay. the province, there was two facilities, one in Victoria, one in Vancouver that were contained. They were jail type facilities, locks and bars and the whole thing. And then two uh, uh, open camps, one on the Island and one in the Fraser Valley. Okay. So they put the camps far enough out in the bush that, uh, Basically, you can't run away or it's difficult well, to run that, away. That, that was good in theory. Uh, yeah. We spent a lot of nights out on the road looking in the middle of the night for kids that had run away, I'll tell you. <laughs> I would imagine so. Um, yeah. So uh, what kind of uh, age groups are we talking here? Obviously under 18, but. Under under 18. I think the youngest was uh, 13. Okay. Yeah. And some pretty tough kids. Some kids that, that uh, clearly you knew where they were heading and they were heading to the adult system. Other kids, uh, there was, there was hope for they, they, uh, particularly if this was their first or second time in a setting like that and they didn't like it, okay. uh, they'd, they'd work harder to try to get out and, uh, stay out. Right. So you felt, uh, I guess kind of a pull probably bef- between, maybe some more progressive type techniques that you learned in academia versus what would be uh, implemented as kind of a, an old school, um, maybe punitive approach. Is that the kind of uh, 
back that's and forth kind, we're talking about? That's the kind of back and forth. And uh, yeah. with the four programs, uh, there was, uh, I, I, I don't think I stood alone uh, in the uh, group of four directors who wanted uh, programs that were softer, uh, more aligned to the needs of the kids. And the balance was, uh, this isn't treatment, uh, so you can't do treatment, but you, you did as much as you could within the limitations that were provided. Right. I, I'm guessing there wasn't, well, for sure there wasn't nearly the amount of individuals probably showing up with addictions to drugs at that time, but were there some minors that uh, showed up with, with hard drug addictions? Uh, that was minimal at that time. Okay. Uh, the alcohol was certainly more prevalent, but the, uh, the harder drugs, no, it was just not part of it at that time. Right. Okay. So how long did you work at that, uh, treatment center? Uh, I was there, uh, from 1977, uh, till 1981. I bet you saw some pretty interesting things. Uh, saw some things that, uh, you could write a book on and it would be a bestseller. Yeah. Uh, other things were, you know, some funny things, some sad things, some things you regretted, uh, some uh, uh, particularly the aggression of some of the kids. Very, very difficult to manage. Yeah. Well, I mean, that time of your life, I mean, I can remember being very angry going through, you know, especially around the age 15, 16, I think, uh, for boys yes. anyway, it's, yes. you're flooded with testosterone and yes, uh, any kind of a problem that you're having at home is going to be magnified times 10. And I yep. would imagine that a lot of those uh, kids in there probably had some pretty horrific home lives. Uh, terrible home lives. If there was one constant with the background of the kids, it was the sometimes deplorable, other times just not good, uh, home lives, if they even had a home life. Uh, some of the kids, the, the, the worst offenders were in there for murder. Is that uh, right? Yeah. Uh, others, it was not as, as bad in a, in a criminal sense, but they'd run the gamut of every, every other community residential program that was being offered. And the judge in the, in the community they appeared in said, that's it. You're going to a juvenile jail. I've had it. So there was such a variety of kids and it was boys. And, and before I left about a year before I left uh, because of, of uh, facility issues and space issues uh, they made these camps co-educational. And uh, uh, if you think 30 boys was fun uh, in an open setting, uh, 30 kids, boys and girls, uh, was just a joy <laughs> in that setting. Um, that sounds like a recipe for insanity. Uh, that's a close description. I would, uh, I would agree <laughs> with you. Wow. Um, so an interesting career, I would say. Uh, wh where did you go after that? Well, I went right down the road. Uh, a district director job had come open that I applied for. And God, and, and essentially that was supervising two of these camps, uh, the, the one that I had left and the other one down the road that was a, a DARE program camp, an outward bound type of camp. And then a series of probation offices in the Fraser Valley that handled both adult and youth probation and family court matters. 
So I had a, a district that I uh, supervised uh, from uh, uh, oh, 19, what did I say, 1981 uh, until 1992. Okay. Yeah. So I imagine a position like that, I'm trying to consider what that would be like. It sounds like a lot of responsibility as far as, you know, you've got the lives of young individuals in your hand, kind of you're, you're playing a part at that level where you're probably involved in policymaking that could affect these kids for the rest of their life. Would I, would that be fair to say? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, but the, the district job was, was strictly administrative, strictly management. Okay. Uh, th- there was no hands-on as there was at the camp I came from. It was strictly a management job. Okay. So maybe a little easier from an emotional standpoint then? Uh... I would say yes. Okay. Yes. But still, uh, that's regardless, that's a lot of uh, ground to cover for one individual. It was a big job. It, 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 it had its stresses for yeah. sure, but it was manageable. Okay. So um, I guess we've discussed a, a little bit about uh, that part of your background. How does, uh, how does Corey fit into this story? When did you get, uh, when did you, uh, I'm guessing you got, well, I know you got married again. Um, we got to uh, the, uh, my first marriage dissolved in 1979. Uh, uh, Libby, my wife, and I were married on January the 1st, 1982. Uh, and I want to just briefly get into something else because it's part of uh it's a key part of the story. At that time, uh, Libby and I had made up our mind. We wanted children. Uh, there was one issue. I had had a vasectomy Uh-oh. when I was in Regina. And uh, how do we deal with that? And uh, I remember going to the uh, urologist and uh, he went through his, uh, you know, these are good signs. These are bad signs kind of thing around lifestyle. And uh, uh, at that time, he asked if I drank, and I said no at that time, and, and he asked for how long, and I told him, and he said, uh, well, that's great. That, that makes a big difference in what we're going to try to do. And he explained what they were going to try to do, and it was a relatively new technique at that time. And so uh, we paid the money, and in I went, and after a period of time, uh, we got the call from the doctor, uh, you know, I guess a couple of months later, uh, saying everything's a go. Uh, hmm. Everything's bang on. It just it couldn't be better. And uh, so we uh, uh, shortly thereafter uh, had our daughter, uh, Corey's sister. And a couple of years later, uh, Corey came along. And, uh, and that was part of our new life and new family. Okay. Uh, just a quick question. Was the choice to have a vasectomy early on, did that have anything to do with uh, uh, working with these delinquent kids? And <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 it didn't. Okay. No, no. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. You, so you're pioneering uh, this, this program, you're, you're probably one of the first cases to have a reverse uh, vasectomy <laughs> in Canada. Yeah. Uh, breaking new ground here. 
The other thing, Nathan, that I just I wanted to mention after I said that uh, I stayed in the uh, community district job uh, until 1992, at which time I moved over from that job to the job of warden of a mm. large uh, adult uh, sentenced facility in the uh, in the province and wow. became warden of that. Uh, spent uh, between uh, 1992 and 1998 there. And then I moved over to a pretrial center uh, in the lower mainland and, uh, and as warden again, and, and spent until 2003 there when I retired. Okay. Wow. That's uh, that's an interesting career path. Well, it wasn't planned that way. And, and when I was offered the job in the jail, it was one that was so foreign. It just, I'd never even thought of that. That wasn't my thing. And uh, I was encouraged to look at it and take it. And once I got in there, uh, I, it was uh, the kind of stress that I hadn't felt before. Uh, highly stressful job. And, and I think that's number one, why they move people around periodically in those positions to give them a bit, a bit of a break. But it was such an interesting job and such a challenge uh, I had gone in there because there was uh, they wanted to make a change because of the labor unrest within okay. the center. And because it was a new center, it was all computerized. And the staff for that had, had come from Ocala, which was all manual. Everything that was, every count was done manually, writing it down. Every, every process, every uh, bit of detail was done by taking a pencil or pen and writing it down here, it was all computerized and the staff had difficulty trusting that trusting right. that the doors wouldn't fly open when they should be locked. Uh, un, un, uh, uninspired by the fact that there was potential in that, in that new technology. And so the first year and a half of the program, when it opened initially uh, was a bit of chaos and they wanted to make a change to see if that would help. And so that was what moved me from uh, A to B unexpectedly. Oh, that's that sounds like a terrible uh, position to start in as far as stress is concerned. Um, it's a, a lot of that is actually still happening, uh, yeah. especially in the medical field. Um, some of our older practitioners are faced with being you know, learning this new technology as far as uh, medical records are concerned and stuff like that versus the old school way of uh, writing on a, a pad and paper and keeping patient notes in a book and stuff like that. And sure. uh, it, I think when you're managing a facility that's going through that kind of a, a transition, you got a lot of, a lot of people who are very resistant to that type of change. They're used to doing it the old way for a long time. And you've got to come in there and somehow figure out the logistics and then deal with the personnel uh, on an individual level as well. I think there was some disadvantages in me not having the background in adult custody. And there was some advantages. I didn't have to look down an avenue that had been traveled for 40 or 50 years. I could say, why not this? Or let's try that. So th there was both advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but it was uh, an experiment that, that uh, up until uh, a point, and, and there was periods of time that, that really, really 
and and I think Corey remembers this, got very stressful, very stressful. Uh, you know, I the two of us that that worked together, uh, that had gone in together as part of this change. Uh, after a couple of weeks, we'd sort of determined that we'd be best if we entered the building every morning with a target on our back because of the amount of distrust uh, towards management and distrust generally within the center. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I was, I, go ahead, Corey. Oh, I mean, I, I, w- I was going to say I was six years old when you started that job, Dad. And, yep. and I remember the not necessarily understanding it, but certainly remembering the palpable stress that it, that you encountered and that you, that you had to carry for that period of time early on, especially early on. Yes. Yeah. 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 Kids are uh, sponges at that age for that type of uh, stressful energy. Uh, They're, they're very receptive and, and able to pick that up. Uh, I guess the, the question is, that we might be leaning towards is uh, your relationship with alcohol. And up to that point, it seems like maybe you were either a non-drinker or drank very little. Is that uh, safe to say? Oh, um, I think when, when I look back, Nathan, and I mentioned before a low uh, self-esteem, low self-image as a kid, uh, I think the drinking issue for me started at the last year or so of high school and into university. And it wasn't, it wasn't alarming, but for, you know, a social evening, a group of friends going out and uh, I don't know what they do now, but at that time, uh, one of us would uh, was old enough or big enough to go in and, and uh, buy a case of beer. Mm -hmm. And then we go out in somebody's car and sit and drink the beer. And, and the thing I noticed was I would become inebriated in that process, not necessarily flat out drunk, but inebriated where the guys around me uh, were feeling it, but not like I was. And, and the drinking got worse, uh, in the next few years uh, around uh, university, there were times where uh, I would welcome uh, as much as I didn't like socializing, I would welcome a social event like a party because I didn't look at it as a party. It was an opportunity to drink. Right. right. And, and when I drank, I, I could socialize with people up to a point, you know, and, yeah. and all of the inhibitions and all of the, oh, I, I can't say hello to him. I, I, you know, went away and I became the life of the party, sure. uh, pr- probably the pain of the butt of the party, but the life of the party, not, notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had also uh, about 18, uh, about that age. Uh, my dad wasn't a, a, a significant drinker at that time. He'd have a, a beer or a drink on the weekend, a Saturday, Sunday, but not during the week. And very often on a Saturday afternoon, he'd be sitting out on the patio and have a beer and say, would you like one? Oh, oh, sure. And, and sort of did that. And over the next number of years in having a drink with my dad, it meant as it went along, you know, I got to pour the drink. 
So okay. if it was if it was rye and coke, he would get you know an amount of of rye. I would get an amount of rye, and <laughs> when I took the two glasses <laughs> into the living room, mine was really light and his was dark, and so I right. had to keep my hand around the glass. <laughs> and those are the kinds of things that that kept. Uh, going, it became a major issue with my first marriage, uh, the, the alcohol. And it's something I'm not proud of, but it, it became uh, an issue that, that that became at times more important uh, uh, to me than maintaining a relationship. Uh, I knew that I was letting my kids down uh, and, and, and drinking too much. There was nothing else I could have done but let them down. Uh, when the uh, drinking continued, when we, uh, when prior to having kids, when I went out to UBC, and this is interesting, there was no issue of drinking at, at that time. That two years, no, there was very little drinking. I had no money, had very little money, enough money to buy food and pay the rent, and that was it. So I, I found that when I was uh, sort of preparing for today. Uh, an interesting, you know, I could stop the drinking then because there was there was no money. When we, uh, when I was up at at uh, at at the the uh, the youth camp, uh, just as an example, uh, I would drive home from work at the end of the day, and I'd swear I'm not having anything to drink tonight. Nothing. I'm not going to touch it. Nope. As I drove down the street, there was a liquor store up the street on the left, and the car automatically, I'd have to, you know, automatically into the parking lot, buy the liquor, and, and go home with it, thus creating more conflict at that time with my wife. Uh, and the process, you know, got, got worse, other than the time at UBC, came back to Regina after UBC, uh, and the, the number of years uh, there until we left in 1977, uh, I drank a lot. It, it didn't affect attendance at work. It didn't, uh, I, I can't say it affected performance. I'm sure it did because there were certainly some days I didn't feel like going in. But that was one of my requirements. I had to be at work and I wasn't going to miss work because of drinking. Okay. But it, it, got more and more and and uh, it it created a really bad situation and for me to say my first marriage broke up what was the biggest reason it wasn't the only reason but the, the drinking was part of it and then I established that new relationship with my current wife and it was a good relationship but the drinking went on and uh, we got married uh, on January the 1st of 1982. And by February the 1st of 1982, or March the 1st of 1982, March the 4th of 1982, I'm sorry, uh, Libby had said, look, either you stop drinking or I leave. And it was like a thunderbolt. Uh, you know, two months? And that's mm -hmm. the best I could do. And that was the point, Nathan, that I quit. Okay. Was, was she, what was her relationship to alcohol? Was she just a, a social drinker, non-drinker? A social drinker. There was times, uh, I think, to keep me happy where she joined me. Yeah. 
and and having uh, you know I she would have one drink before supper I would have three or four okay and and I mean and, and then it it she realized that perhaps she was uh, by drinking herself with me encouraging that and it reached the point where she said I can't do this anymore you've got to you've got to quit and you've got to refocus or I I'm out of here okay and what was the like you're you're still showing up to work um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, it seems like you've got uh, that managed. What was the, what was her concerns at that time? Just that your, your health or was your behavior off or what? Uh... I, I, uh, when I, even when I finished, my, I had my last drink. Uh, my behavior was still cold. It was still full of ugly ugliness uh and belligerent at times and that stayed there nathan and it was uh, you know we've talked about it in the past it was almost like being a dry drunk uh i uh i my behavior didn't change until the birth of my daughter and then it changed uh and then Corey came along and it continued to change and those hard edges fell away. Okay. <laughs> the uh, reliance on alcohol was gone. I'd hoped, but the behavior had to have another series of events to, to bring about a change at that time. And at that time I hadn't gone to counseling uh, or any other program. So it was just raw, wrong, I guess. You could say you okay. weren't doing, you were you didn't do 12 steps. No, Dad. no, I didn't. No. Can you, can you, can you speak to why you didn't? I think a couple of reasons. Uh, um, one, I believed at that time after I'd stopped and the only way I can explain it after I stopped drinking, uh, I was absolutely shocked when I reached about the fifth day. Because I tried to stop before and okay, I've one day. And then by the second day, I'd say, well, look, I proved that I could stop drinking. So I'm just going to get another, but I, I couldn't. So here, here's two weeks, here's a month. And as a result of that, uh, I felt much stronger, uh, much more able to manage that, not manage the behavioral issues that were there, but manage the drinking. So my view was, I don't need. Uh, probably very naive. I don't need that in answer to your question, Corey. Uh, I, uh, I can do it on my own. Uh, and the, the other thing, uh, I had known a number of people that I'd worked with who's either uh, their rel- a relative of theirs or themselves had belonged to uh, AA and nothing but positives. They just loved, loved the experience. But it didn't turn me on. And I'd, I'd looked and studied it a bit to find out what I would be getting into. And I just know I'm going to do it on my own. Now, if you'd come along to say we've got the ACME uh, treatment center down the road, that's a beautiful thing and you can go for nothing. The answer would have been no, I'm going mm. to do it myself. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, people do that. You know, it's not... Uh using a peer support group is not necessary to change your behavior, especially if it's something you really want to do. Yes. Yes. And 
having proved to yourself that you were able to get away from that behavior pattern and saying that you were left with, I'm assuming here that the alcohol kind of brought out the, you you mentioned as a hardness, a hardness to your personality or a sharpness um, that was maybe worse when you were drinking and then persisted even when you stopped. Yes. Uh, Was that something that you think had always been with you or was that maybe a, uh, something that you developed as a secondary to maybe being a part of the uh, prison system or, or where do you think that came from? Uh, I think it was tied into the inner, inner Ron, the, the uh, kid younger that didn't have the confidence to move forward. And I think the fact that I was able to quit Nathan on my own created that. Uh, created that ability at least to fool myself that I could do it on my own at that time. It was, and, and the behavior itself, the coldness, the belligerence, uh, I think was a function of the amount I was drinking. It was, because uh, part of it was, yeah, get off my back. I'm not hurting anybody kind of a thing. And then when I did stop, that stayed there because I could find other things. Yeah. That, oh, it's not because I'm drinking, it's because I'm doing something else. So I think there was probably whoever was living with me, uh, and, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, my family, my wife, had to deal with a lot of things, I think, that I didn't really focus on and, and didn't want to be aware of in my behavior, in my uh, attitude. Okay, that makes sense. I, I did have one question about uh, what you said earlier when you went in to see the doctor about your reverse vasectomy um you told the doctor that you weren't a drinker at that time were you no i i had stopped already okay Uh, i had stopped and then it was a a few months after i had stopped that we started talking about the our desire to have kids okay and uh so i had stopped for a few months and he said that was enough that 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 would help okay could you Dad, speak to the messages that you got from doctors previous, previously, prior to sure, the vasectomy, sure. you know, because there's some interesting information yeah. there. I uh, had a couple of examples that uh, uh, when I was living in Chilliwack, uh, I had a need to see a, a medical doctor and I didn't have one. So I looked one up and went and had an appointment and walked into his office and Whatever was wrong with me, he said, no, there's no problem. I'll just give you a prescription. That's, that's fine. And he said, any other issues? And I said, well, I, you know, I, I'm starting to get a bit concerned about how much I drink. And he said, uh, how much do you drink and what do you drink? So I told him. And, and uh, at, my, at my top, Nathan, I could, I could uh, finish uh, close to a 26 a day. And I was drinking seven days a week. But at that okay. time... Uh, I, I said to him, well, you know, maybe I probably lowered the amount to talk to him. Uh, I said, oh, half a bottle, three quarters of a bottle a day. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, I drink more than that. I, I wouldn't worry about that. So I left his office feeling just a million bucks. See, I'm right. I don't have to stop drinking. Yeah. And we had a, I had a doctor as well a number of years later that, that uh, uh, he made kind of the same kind of comment that, that, you know, why are you stopping drinking? 
you know, if you don't want to drink hard liquor, drink beer. Yeah. He said, that's what I do when, when I need to slow down a bit, I just go to beer. So he said, Ron, start drinking beer and, and you'll be much happier. Okay. So there it goes again. <laughs> I don't have to stop my doctors. So there was a couple of examples like that, that I, I used, I actually used yeah. to my well, benefit to say, I don't, I don't need to stop. It's a sign of it's a sign of the times too. I mean, uh, it used to be like in the seventies and, and eighties. I mean, you look back, everybody smoked, everybody drank. Yep. There was way less emphasis on health in general. Yep. And uh, it's interesting that you, you said that you told your doctor the first time that you drink maybe half or three quarters of a bottle because doctors now are trained to, to double or, or add a third to whatever the patient says. And yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that would have been pretty much bang on in your case. That's, that's exactly right. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm sure other people have run into that going in and seeing their doctors too. Absolutely. Uh, either about smoking or drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to uh, pause us for one second here, guys. And we're back. Sorry about that, folks. I had to change my shirt. I was too hot. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, so I guess we can continue from there up until, um, so you had, you had decided to quit drinking and you'd managed to pull it off. When was the, uh, when was it that you got around to dealing with this kind of inner Ron that was maybe a little cold or harsh? Well, I think at that time, and, and the biggest help uh, that, the, that I had with the uh, issue of drinking came from my wife. And, and she is an extremely strong person. And she did things that sort of built in, she developed a very routine structure, which I live by uh, uh, for our home life. Everything was predictable. Uh, we talked a lot. We uh, talked endlessly. Mm -hmm. And I, I think uh, if I was to be completely honest, Nathan, some of those traits are with me today in, in a, uh, a more contained fashion. Sure. Uh, but as we went through that and, and particularly uh, started planning for uh, our, our two youngest children, uh, coming and joining us, uh, life changed because then we, we moved, we moved into a house. Uh, our life became, uh, in my view, much more positive. We, to maintain the house and the yard, there was, there was a focus of work that, that, uh, had to be done. And uh, I'm the one that's going to do it. My wife's family was extremely helpful. Uh, all of them in terms of uh, their assistance in, in being able to uh, move the, that along. And, and they had a history uh, in parts of her family uh, with alcohol issues as well. So they, they knew what their sister and their daughter was dealing with. But at the same time, they were extremely uh, fair and, and good to me uh, to provide as much support as possible to uh, you know, get the drinking under control or stopped. And I think the personality issues, just uh, some of them mitigated at that time. 
slowly. Other ones stayed with me and, and faded by the way. And there's still some here today. I, when I'm on, I'm on. When I'm off, uh, you know, I am a little more difficult to deal with. Sure. This is the uh, case with being a human being. Yeah. <laughs> um, was your wife surprised to see that you just kind of turned off the drinking like that? No, I think she was, to be honest, I think she was probably desperate enough uh, that uh, I, I, deep down, I, I kind of think she, with a very direct warning, uh, either you quit or I leave, and she knew that I knew she was serious. She okay. would have walked out tomorrow. If I came home and with a bottle, she would have been gone. Uh, so she was the one that established uh, and provided me strength. Uh, and and I, I've had a lot of time to think about that. And that was, she was the, the godsend for me uh, to help me out of it mm -hmm. and, and to provide the support and understanding to try to get me to the next step and the next step and the next step. Yeah, that's that's interesting that she she knew to draw that line in the sand. She she guessed that it was going to be the right thing for you, and she also knew you well enough to know that you there would be a good chance that you would actually change your behavior if faced with such a threat. Which I, I find think so. I find I, that I pretty so. interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. So. I mean, I I see you two as as you know about as close to to soulmates as you could get. And, and, um, and mom knows you extremely well, and I'm sure yeah. even then knew you extremely well. Yeah. And, um, and that, that I, I agree that she probably just knew that that was what needed to be in it, but also was looking out for herself and yeah. setting, setting a boundary there for herself that that had to be done. Well, it but, had to but, be, she had, she had to, she would have yeah. gone down with me because yeah. I don't think I could have gone on a lot longer without something uh, happening that uh, either destroyed my life or both our lives. I think so. I, we've said that before in our family yes. that, that that really saved your life. It did. It yeah. was, yeah, I wouldn't be here today without that. Hmm. What a wise woman. Oh, <laughs> really wise. <laughs> um, so having spoke to that, um, how did things continue once you, once you had kids and, um, you must have kind of found other things to do. I guess you're saying that uh, keeping you moved into a house, so you had kind of new maintenance tasks and stuff like that. What other things were you doing at the time to kind of keep yourself busy? Well, I mean, the work around the house, it was an old, all we could afford was a very small old house. So it needed lots of attention, lots of love, had a big yard, and uh, <clears throat> I... Uh, did a lot of work in the yard and uh, improved that. Uh, I recall coming home from from uh, from work and uh, sort of taking the kids for a walk, and then if it was still light, working out in the yard for an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it at that time, so I I did that. Uh, we had our hands full with uh, with our our new family, and at that time too. Uh, uh, our uh, oldest, my oldest daughter, Megan, uh, had, was living with us uh, when we were in the house. Uh, and she had uh, originally with the breakup had lived with her mother. And then she had, she had said, 
to my wife one day, I never want to be separated from my dad again. Can I come and live with you? And, and she did. And she lived with us uh, for uh, a number of years. Okay. So, so we had our hands full with a teenager and two little kids and, okay. and uh, all the things we were trying to do around the house. Right. So you've got two younger kids and then, uh, Megan, how, how old was Megan when she arrived? Uh, she would have been, uh, Oh, 13, maybe, uh, uh, 12, 13. Okay. Um, so there was a tragedy that occurred, uh, with Megan in yeah. 1987. And, mm-hmm. uh, can you describe what happened? Um, Megan was part of, she was a manager of the, uh, one of the managers of the junior boys basketball team at her high school. And they were planning a trip to, uh, uh, the interior for a basketball tournament. And, uh, we'd encouraged her to go and, uh, she wanted to go. And there was uh, another girl that was a manager as well. So, uh, they would stay together and they headed out and, uh, my wife, ran her over to the school to uh, uh, get her ride. And uh, that was on a, on a Friday afternoon, about one o'clock. And uh, Friday evening, uh, about seven o'clock, uh, our doorbell rang. And uh, it was two RCMP officers who came in to tell us that there'd been an accident. There had been four kids that had been killed and our daughter was one of them. And uh and they were very kind people, uh, you know, talk about people that are helpful. The, the way they handled themselves was, was uh, a real help as well. So we then had that uh, face to face and, and to work, work on. I remember calling uh, my wife's parents and they both came over. And uh, within a day, and I think it was interesting too, it shows sort of my wife's perspective as we were uh, sorting out our, our uh, uh, initial grief and trying to say, well, <clears throat> we've got too much to do right now that we got to keep moving. We got lots of help, but we got to keep moving. So we'll do it together. And over the next day, two people that night, uh, my, my wife's brother had phoned and he'd had a history of, of uh, uh, alcohol and drug abuse for years. And uh, he had found out what had happened and he'd phoned to say, I've, I've got to come over right away uh, so I can help Ron because he's going to want to start drinking right away. Right. And uh, Libby said, no, he's not. He's not going to drink. And the next day, our doctor phoned, who is also a friend of ours. And, uh, and she had said to Lib, I, I've got to come over. I, there's a number of things I can prescribe, but I want to do something for Ron so he doesn't feel he can fall back to drinking. And she said, no, don't do it. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, it. It's clear to me he won't drink. And she was absolutely right. It, it had not crossed my mind with the horrendous uh, news and seeing what was ahead of us. Uh, it, it uh, again, I, I had to rely and it, it wanted to rely on her to help see me through. And the next number of days was uh, just uh, part of it sort of blurred out uh, because of the nature of the <clears throat> accident. It was on, uh, TV on the news mm-hmm. 
It was the newspapers were full of it. Uh, the uh, the whole community. Uh, we had people showing up to our door with food that we've yeah. never met before. Right. Uh, we knew there was other families involved, but had never met them. Uh, we had to plan the funeral, which we did. And uh, after people left, you know, family members, my dad and my brother came out. Uh, and after they had left, we're, we're left by ourselves again. But not long after that, Nathan, we, we ended up developing a <clears throat> what could best be looked at as a bond, a very helpful bond with the other three families. One, okay. of, the, one, one of the families suggested that we get together. And we did. And out of that came some discussion around how bad we felt the school district's travel to sports events policies were in terms of how they didn't follow and maintain a, a requirement around uh, checking uh, criminal record searches, checking the level of driver's license, checking the driving record, stuff like that. And so we, we met at times every every couple of weeks, or I'm sorry, two times a week. Uh, and I was at somebody else's house and we rotated that. And the discussion got to, we need to develop a, a presentation to the school district to let them know what we want, which we did. And, and uh, we need to uh, put our heads together to figure out how we're going to proceed. And it was with all of the collective grief in that room, we as four families were the only ones who knew what each other were feeling, what each other had experienced. And we knew every detail of that, the accident, mm -hmm. how it happened, where it happened, why it happened. And uh, the extent of, of the devastation uh, around uh, people losing, families losing their valued teenage children uh, because they went to a, a school uh, tournament and, and, uh, and got, uh, were, were killed. Uh, and as a family, uh, we, Liv and I benefited from that. And I think the other families did too, because on any given day when anybody was down, all they had to do was pick up the phone and call another one of the other family members. And you knew you were going to get a, a fair reception and an understanding at the other end. So that really, really helped us. Was that something that uh, was suggested to you or was that something that just happened organically that your, your wife uh, and yourself uh, ended up kind of getting to know the other families? Um, no, it, it was initiated by the uh, husband of one of the families. He had felt, he said, let's just get together. And there may be some benefit in just socializing. There may be, uh, he obviously had a little bit of an agenda and that was to pursue some of the things that he had looked into after the accident and didn't like in yeah. terms of how it was handled. So there was a reason, but the social, the support, the help, well, the help was the primary. It actually makes a lot of sense. And I wonder if that's something that they recommend uh, for similar tragedies that happen now. Um, I wonder 
do, if you're still in contact with those other families, I, I would be interested to know how many of the husband and wife couples are still together. We, we are not in, in contact. It, it went, the contact went on maybe for oh, four years okay. in, in that range. And then it just sort of, and, and Lib and I both said, maybe now is time to, if there's anything meant to keep connected, it'll happen. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know if they're still together or not. I yeah. know, an interesting question. Yeah, I just asked because, uh, as you probably know, many uh, married couples have trouble making it through such a uh, devastating loss. Yes. So, so I guess one way that you processed the uh, the event was kind of getting together with these other families, finding support through them, and then maybe putting some of your energy into writing a wrong that you felt was, uh, you know, a, a situation that you felt was inadequate with the current uh, guidelines or, or standards for the, the yes. school at that time. Yes. Uh, that was probably helpful. Was there other things that, yes. that you used to kind of get through? Well, there were some things that were not uh, sort of normal events when I looked at the question, I, the inquest, uh, and say, well, what's the value of the inquest? Lots of value. It was a, a process that lasted, in this case, five days. Uh, I have never seen the array of experts that were called in on, on traffic accidents, on speed, on because the nature of the accident was really horrendous, how it happened with a semi-trailer and mm -hmm. hitting a, a, a van and... and uh, and and that was that was helpful. The the family stuck together for that. It was almost mm -hmm. an extension of the group. Now we're going to the inquest, and we came out of that with as much anger, but more understanding. And that understanding, at least with Libby and I, helped reduce the anger. To say to say, you know, it's normal to be angry when your child is killed in an accident that could have been prevented, uh, could have been. Uh, and it was something that, uh, that sort of fit in uh, to our feeling that the school district sort of wasn't doing their, their, a, a full uh, process of checking out and, and identifying the dangers. Like the person driving had three previous uh, drunk driving Oh, wow. yeah, three of them. And, and that came out at the inquest. Mm. So that we, we didn't know that ahead of time that came out at the inquest. Okay. So one of the events sort of led into supporting another, and that was the, the, uh, the traffic uh, uh, or the, the trip protocols with the schools. The other thing that sort of really helped uh, all of us. And I, I, Corey was, very young at that time, but uh, uh, we headed over. We were, you know, floundering uh, uh, in the spring in terms of now that this is done, this is done, this is done, what's next? And our doctor had said, well, I go to a place called Hornby Island every summer to, uh, to get away. And it's a beautiful place. It's like Greece. How would you feel if I could arrange some of the pre people that I 
rent the cottage from. Maybe they'd rent it to you. We had no idea what it was or where it was. We said, sure. Well, that established for us, uh, for me, a place of extreme beauty that I, I don't think I would have noticed. Okay. Uh, a place of extreme beauty and a place that I'm sure in the back of my mind, uh, this was Megan's place, if that makes any sense. Uh, th th this was an idyllic, uh, idealistic, or no, uh, it, it was a almost a picture-perfect representation of nature at its best. Nice. And thought, Megan would love it here. Mm -hmm. She would have loved it here. And so I think there was, we went back a number of years after that, each year, for five or six or seven years, uh, uh, back to the same place, and then started renting different places to try them out and and really really enjoyed it but it was a a rejuvenation center for our family yeah that wasn't planned ahead of time but it fit in with you know the, the four families uh i didn't go back to drinking because i've said my wife and my kids that's where the responsibility went but the knowledge getting rid of the anger getting rid of the rage uh uh, one of the uh, uh, examples that we were talking about, and I, I wasn't going to mention it today, but I will, because it, it's the rage thing. I had, uh, sometime after the accident, uh, I was over at one of the shopping malls and had, had uh, Corey, pushing Corey in a, in a cart, walking across the, the parking lot, and uh, our daughter was holding my hand, and as I walked in front, there was a, a roadway coming across and I waited and there was no cars coming. So I stepped out and this woman driving wasn't watching and zipped right ahead and just clipped the cart that Corey was in. Oh, man. It. <clears throat> My response, I turned to her, stared her down, walked over and kicked her door, her front door as hard as I could. Right. And thought, what have I done? And turned around and went, went into the mall. And the first guy at the door said, I saw that whole thing. Good work. He, <laughs> said, that, that's, he said, you should have called the police. So, I mean, the, the rage was there. And, and, and that part took a while to, to work itself out. Yeah. I, I can't imagine, but with uh, emotions on that level, it probably takes quite some time no matter what you're doing to process them to a point where you're at a, at some level of peace with, with the way things went. I mean, we're, yes. we're talking about years and years. What did you, did you take time off work when that happened? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming you took some time. What, what uh, length of time did you? Looking back, Nathan, it was ridiculous. I took a week. Oh, wow. And what a mistake. What a mistake. I, I think I had a need, looking at my own uh, needs and requirements, to get back to work. Uh, so maybe I'll forget it. Maybe I'll yeah. just move ahead and we can. And, uh, you know, my, my thinking even at that time. Uh, when Megan was killed, and, and I think this goes back to the, the insecurity of, of, and the shame that I carried for a number of years, my whole process of analyzing that is that 
if I hadn't been born, Megan wouldn't have died. And that's how I looked at it. If I hadn't been born, obviously she wouldn't have been born. Right. And she'd still be alive. And it took a while. It, it took a while for, for me to get out of that kind of thinking. And <clears throat> the thinking was harder to get out of because in the past, I'd grab a drink, yeah. have a couple of drinks, and I'd forget about it. But it was there, raw, having to, having to work on and deal with. Did you, I, I want to say that that's probably a lot of people's response to, to tragedy is to, I mean, we all know that there's, there's probably a right way and a wrong way of dealing with uh, the emotions associated with something like that. Or maybe there is no right way. We'll say there's better and there's worse ways, sure. but I, I could see you wanting to get back to work just from a, let's, you know, I need to get away from this nightmare for a little while and focus on something else. Yeah. Um, that part's understandable. What did, uh, did you end up reaching out for, or was any counseling provided that was there any source of help in that way? No, I, I didn't, uh, uh, didn't avail myself. Uh, the government uh, program would have provided something. But at that point, I wasn't open to that. Okay. Uh, you know, we had, <clears throat> we had, uh, we're floundering. Uh, I was floundering at that time. And, and uh, my wife had, a, had a, a friend, a local church minister in the community. And uh, he had become more and more concerned uh, uh, about uh, uh, my behavior uh, was causing grief, my attitude and, and selfishness at times, grief uh, for my, my wife, and I'm sure my kids in their own way. And he said, I think you guys really need some major help. Said, okay. And he said, I'm going to contact somebody that I have the highest regard for. And he's a counselor of renown in the, in the province. And let me see if I can convince him. And he phoned back a couple of days later and said, he said, he'll take you both. Now, we lived in the Fraser Valley. His office was in West Vancouver. And we ended up seeing him at times, three times a week. And wow. it's not, not, not every time, but once a week at times, twice. But there was times three a week. We attended 60 sessions by driving in, uh, and, and it was the best experience for, for me, who was shutting himself off from any kind of help. It was the best experience. I mean, he even looked at me at one point and said, Ron, I want to say something to you, okay? He said, we've talked a bit about the shame you've carried. He said, I want to tell you that you felt shame from the time you first drew breath when you mm. were born. That's how deep your shame is. Yeah. And he, he told us very clearly, you don't have the right to not deal with your grief 100%. You owe it to your kids. You owe it to your three children. And, and you've got to focus on that. And I think we did. I, I think we did to the best of our ability. We had a great attitude uh, towards uh, his style 
uh, his perspective, his knowledge. Uh, he was a, an interesting person, uh, an interesting background. Uh, he was both a lawyer and, and a, a, a church minister. Wow. Uh, and uh, he, he just was a phenomenal counselor. And he had helped us so much. So that was, aside from, from me relying so much on my wife, and saying that how much she had progressed me from uh, down here to up here over a period of time, we have both always felt that this particular counselor was just, uh, he saved our lives, ultimately, wow. at a different level. You guys were just on the brink of, of becoming that statistic of, of couples who lose a child yeah. ending up in divorce. You were, and ending you were, up in divorce. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, you know, mom had, had told me that when she had originally, uh, her friend, the minister who made this referral for us, uh, she had said to him one day, I can't, I'm really having trouble uh, living with Ron and his attitude and his belligerence at times and stuff. I'm going to leave. And he said, no, you're not. Hmm. No, you're not. And he said, give me two days. And that's when he went out and, and said, you're, you're going to see this guy if I have to <laughs> yeah, bribe him to see you kind of a thing. You're going to see him. And, well, and that was the best thing that could have happened. Totally the best. Amazing. Dad, can, can you speak to, just to provide a little additional context? I mean, you, you guys were, as if the story thus far wasn't enough, you guys were facing um, biblical levels of, of stress and, and, uh, and challenges. Can you, can you speak to the additional challenge that you guys were facing simultaneous to, to grieving Megan's loss? Help me out, Cor. I'm blocking a bit. Oh, it's the daycare story. Oh, the daycare. Yes. Our, our, uh, uh, both, uh, Corey and his sister were in, in, uh, one or two days a week in a daycare. And that gave uh, Liv a bit of a break uh, to get some things done. And, and it allowed the kids to socialize with other kids. Well, we found out uh, that there was some, some abuse taking place at the daycare that did affect our kids. Okay. And, and, and the, the rage that that brought on. I mean, I could have gone in there and, and single-handedly, uh, whatever, but I mm -hmm. didn't. And was advised not to, and and uh, and and the police were aware of it, and they'd said no, just stay away. Good, but that was thrown in. And thank you, Corey, for reminding me. I there was so much I I forgot about that. That that here we have two young kids, and we're trusting uh, uh, a daycare center that was uh, that was recommended by the local community services society agency. And look what's happened. Wow. And so here's here's our our grief, you know, reproduced in another another area. And and we had dealt with that. And uh, it took a long time with that to to work that out. And, and that same counselor helped you with that. Same too. counselor helped us with that. And uh, and it, it, he it, he had some major major uh, you know help. Uh, that he directed towards us in that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a tremendous 
burden to be uh, saddled with all at once. Um, one of those things would obviously devastate a parent, but both are. Yeah, that's uh, that's significant. I, I'm wondering how. I mean, this must have affected your other children somehow. Uh, how did you try to mitigate all these events as far as their impact on your your younger kids, including Corey? Uh, we as a as a as a foursome, uh, the the two young kids and and Liv and I, uh, we pulled together as much as as. I think was humanly possible. We did lots of things together. Uh, we, uh, uh, you'd have to see my wife and her mothering skills. Mm. They're, they're just tremendous. Uh, and, and the time that was spent with the kids doing things, overseeing. And, and in both cases, they, uh, particularly our, our daughter, uh, didn't really, uh, she was traumatized both with her sister not coming home and now with this and, and she turned inward and it took a, it, it, it was a real battle to, uh, to make sure that, that she came out of her shell and, uh, and eventually she did. And uh, I just think that with all of the, with all of the heartache we had and all of the stress and anguish, uh, my wife and I worked well together to see that our first and foremost and only priority was our two kids. And I say two kids, my uh, second oldest daughter from my first marriage uh, was with us off and on. Mm-hmm. And but I don't put her in the same category as as Corey and, and Kate because of her age. Right. Uh, and and she was uh, had other interests at that time. And uh, and she was very devastated, but with the death of her sister, but had different resources Her you know, she lived in a different community. And uh, and uh, but with the kids, they were number one. They they had to uh, have our attention. First and foremost, before we did anything, uh, particularly after work in the evening, uh, for our own benefit, we they got our attention totally, and and that's how I think we said. Well, if we need additional help, we'll get additional help. But part of it's got to come from us, yeah. and, and the major part's got to come from us. And I think it did. What did you do? You, do you remember much of that period, Corey? What uh... What was that like for you? Well, I mean, at the time that this was going on, this was 1987. I was a, a year old at this time. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but, but you know, I think that um, for one, it's the the length of time that that the experience of grief takes or goes on is, is understated or misunderstood by some people. That it, it it's a it's a long, long process. Yes. So I think looking at it as an adult now, I understand that it, it's the, it was the context of the home that I grew up in was, was growing up with parents who were, who were working through this. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly felt it as a kid, the, the love and the, the time and care that my, my parents put, put my way and, and my family's way. Um, 
and with all of the loss of control that we as a family faced, you know, the, the things that we couldn't control that, that were getting kind of hurled at us, um, what, what you and mom could control was our, was the home life inside and, and, yes. and, um, yeah. So there was a lot of time and a lot of, uh, care and love that went towards us for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, to be honest, I mean, this, that time of my life is something that I've still, I'm still wrapping my head around. Oh, I bet. I and bet. The, the context of, of, of that as my childhood of, of having parents that were devastated and that, you know, we've had losses in our family since then, um, yeah. that I, that I, I was old enough to recall and that I was a part of and knowing how long those losses have taken to, to come to terms with or figure out or, or just establish some peace with, yes. um, let alone the loss of a, of a, of a child. I, it's just, it's so cliche to say it's unimaginable, but it is really, um, again, a work in progress for me to continue to try to understand, I think. Well, yeah. And, and your reaction at, at, as you said, you were, you know, just less than a year old, I think, uh, when, when uh, Megan died. And for the next year or so, you would, or in the next couple of years, uh, just out of the blue, periodically, you would come into the room that mom and I were in, particularly mom, and just sobbed uncontrollably. And when mom would calm you down, what, what's happened? What's the matter? I miss Megan. Now, at, at that age, you wouldn't have had a lot of memories. You would have had some. Absolutely. But that stayed with you, Corey, for a long time in terms of that gap, that void in your life that, that you knew deep down uh, was there and now isn't there. Yeah. And, and so it affected both you and, and your, your sister in different ways, but it yeah. affected you deeply. I, I, I remember that. And I, I think it... Um... Oh, it speaks to the the intangible, the intangible quality mm -hmm. of the of the soul. Right? Sure. You know, Absolutely. I want to go really, really, really deep with it. That uh, yeah. that the soul has a memory that that our brain does not. Would yeah. be my that would be my okay. shortest shortest the ex explanation that I can um, concisely say that I've come to peace with. So yeah, absolutely. Well, kids at that age are. Um, whatever the parents are feeling, you're taking that on, you're maybe even uh, magnifying it, you know? So I can't imagine that you wouldn't be at least somewhat affected by your parents going through that just on a, regardless of your age, really. I mean, uh, even if you didn't know at one year old, one years old, um, what was happening, you, you would feel it. Totally. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, and, and with, with people who are dealing with it now, uh, I think there's, there's some, a real value in, in parents utilizing the strength. And not every family has those strengths we're looking for, but many, many do, that rely on the strengths within your family to help pull you through it to help lead you through it, to be with, with you when you go through it and, and not do it on your own. Find something beautiful. Like I used Hornby Island that gives you a, a look into the, into the future perhaps and, and uh, something you hadn't expected to see, but uh, see. And the other thing, give yourself permission to laugh. Mm. And that may sound uh, a little bit strange, 
But there were times where we were so full of grief that between the tears came some laughter. Yeah, the smallest sure. thing, the smallest thing that was a bit humorous uh, was there to sort of laugh at. And I don't mean we we did a lot of laughing, but the bit we did was was valuable to us as a couple. It really was. Yeah, I, I think that's what happens when when you're processing emotion correctly, because it, it, we're not designed to stay in one state of emotion for any length of time. So no. if you're if you're focused on your grief and you're talking about it, you're thinking about it, you're meeting with other people about it, you can't, uh, it's just not possible to stay in that frame of mind forever. No. So once in a while, what is, what's going to happen? You're going to bounce out of it. And yep. And that's, that's something that's one of our kind of in uh, innate traits that allows us to yeah. deal with such things. Yeah. You know, and I, I look and say, one of the things I'm most grateful for is that Megan, the last five years of her life, she saw me sober mm. with my second oldest daughter. Uh, she hasn't seen me drink in 40 years. With uh, Kate and Corey, they've never seen me drink. And that gives me strength as well. Right. It, it really does. It's, it's part of the inner process of dealing with all my demons at times, but it, it, it does the trick. Yeah. And when I look and say, yeah, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, it'll be 40 years since I had a drink. And uh, on January the 1st just passed, it's been 40 years of marriage. <laughs> and uh, the two of those uh, are very much integrated. They very much are. Yeah, uh, I, it sounds like it. Uh, that's a, that's quite a progression and quite a story, uh, Ron. I wonder, have you ever thought about how things would be different if those tragedies never occurred, as, as, especially with you and your wife? Because it sounds like, I mean, Maybe you wouldn't have seen uh, the the counselor there that provided you with so much insight had those tragedies not occurred, or you know maybe you wouldn't have um, been able to stay so focused on on your kids and and walk in the, the a path that uh, kept you away from alcohol. Do do you kind of allow yourself to consider that once in a while? Uh, occasionally, it's 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 come to mind. Yes, and uh, I, I think that where I was at, at, at each of those periods of time, uh, something that either I did or somebody else did, uh, gave me a sense of strength that I hadn't felt. I can honestly say I hadn't felt, uh, at the top of my career. I hadn't felt as a teenager. Uh, I hadn't felt in my twenties. I just it wasn't there, but something peeled away that allowed me to say, I can be a better person. Now I can, I can, I can uh, be a better dad mm -hmm. and certainly I can be a better husband. And am I perfect? Gosh, no. But I think those events uh, like the counseling, that long period of counseling with, with the uh, counselor uh, that wouldn't have happened if, if Megan hadn't been killed. And, and mm -hmm. there's one example of, of, uh, maybe taking advantage of a situation that's completely devastating and coming out with some help and saying that was really what we needed that, well, that helped us turn the corner. 
Yeah. I mean, these are the, the silver lining type situations where regardless of how devastating an event is, people either are crushed by it and never recover, or they find a way to, to continue on and probably become more resilient for the experience. And it sounds yes. like that's what you've done. Yes. Yes. And you know, dad, when I, as we're having this whole conversation, the thing that, that comes up for me is the power of, of, of choice and the power of, of the vocabulary that we use. And so in 1982, when you quit drinking, uh-huh. you said, you know, you, you didn't have a choice and you didn't no. give yourself a choice. It was, you had a no. really pretty um, firm resolve about that. Yeah. And then the message in 1987 after Megan died was that you don't have a choice. You got to get your shit together and, and, and keep going and keep going for, for us and for your family and for, for yourself. Your, for the kids. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of power in that. And mm-hmm. of course we have choice. We all have choice and, and we have choice to, to drink or not. We have choice with, with everything, but, sure. but the power of, of using that vocabulary is really fascinating to me to, you know, cause if you had to said to yourself, well, I, I could go back to that. Like, would that, would that have changed the outcome too? Um, it's I'm a powerful, sure. powerful thing. It is. And I, and I, I really can't answer uh, definitively, but the question uh, in my mind always is I can with complete honesty say that I've never once considered going back to drinking. And then I say, that sounds too simple. That sounds <laughs> too easy. Uh, but I, I've never said, oh, gosh, it'd be nice to have a drink. Uh-uh. It just hasn't been something that uh, has been there. And and I can't fully explain that. Maybe someday somebody will write a book on it or something. Well, it, I, I'm familiar with people having that experience. I've seen right. it before, especially yeah. for some reason in smokers. I don't know if you've, you see somebody who maybe has tried six or seven times to quit smoking and then something happens and you see a change in them and you can tell that they genuinely want to quit smoking. It's not a, it's no longer a battle. There isn't two sides to it. They have decided that they don't want to smoke anymore and therefore they quit. Yes. And and it does sound simple. Unfortunately, getting to that point. Isn't simple. (laughs) Isn't simple at all. I know. As a former smoker, smoker, I can attest to that too. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting. It is. It is. And you, you quit smoking the same way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I quit smoking. Uh, I mean, I, I, my, the first time I quit smoking core was, uh, it was probably about 18 and I'd been smoking from the time I was 15 and a hockey player that I admired in the NHL at that time died of cancer. And that was it. I stopped, stopped for 15 years and then started again. Mm-hmm. Stopped for 10 years and then started again. And that's how it went. And uh, when we stopped last time, and your mother as well, uh, it's never been a, gosh, I could really use a smoke. It's done. Mm-hmm. It's done. Yeah. 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 And so it goes. Um, well, thanks very much for taking the time, Ron, to uh, kind of share those stories with us. It's uh, it's 
It's interesting for a whole bunch of different reasons, and I could probably uh, ask you a whole bunch more questions, <laughs> uh, perhaps on another episode. Sure, um, absolutely. But you've uh, you've given us a lot to think about here, and and uh, yeah, we really, we appreciate it. Well, being here today has been absolutely my pleasure, and uh, <laughs> you you guys are doing great stuff, and I mean that, and keep it up. Thank you very much. Did you want to uh, add anything, Corey? No, I yeah. Thanks a lot, Dad, for 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 joining us on this episode. Um, your your story. I'm I'm familiar with your story. It's part of my story, yeah. um, but it certainly has been inspiring and helpful to me. And it's something I've reflected on um, as I've been on my own journey here. And good, um, good. and I, I I think there's a lot of value, and I hope that that um, that it's helpful to to our listeners too. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. All right, guys, I think that's a wrap for episode number 11. We will uh, say goodbye for now and see everybody next time. Thanks, everybody. See you soon.